Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. It's good to be with you. If you're watching from home, I'm glad that we still have this option available to us. I hope you were as excited as I was about the news that we may be able to get into the now arena and worship all together as a church again. That place is so large that uh, really there's no danger of us filling or exceeding the capacity limits there. And so essentially that means our church can reopen and there is no reason we can't be together. We understand that some of you will still have valid reasons why it's not easy uh, or advisable for you to be in person. But if at all possible, I want to urge you to take that step of faith and let's get our old muscles stretched again and let's be together as a church. I truly believe it's going to make a difference in the way that we grow in faith and are able to serve the world around us better. And so uh, hopefully by mid-June we will be able to get in there. Would you pray that God would uh, work through any obstacles that remain and make it possible for us to be together as a church independent of weather as a whole group, whole community, again, in one place. This morning, I'm going to start another series. I'm going to cut that last series a little bit short, and I have a reason for doing that. The last message in that series on the throne room of heaven actually dovetails so nicely with the first message in this new series uh, that I'm just going to launch right in. And I want to start with a question. Do you remember the first time you were asked to pray aloud publicly in front of other people? Maybe it's possible you've never been asked to do that or you dread being asked to do that, but do you remember the first time someone invited you even just to pray around the table in front of others for a meal or something? Now, if you're like me, even if you're kind of naturally comfortable talking and talking in front of people, prayer is a whole different kind of communication. And so I really struggled the first time I was asked to pray in public, uh, and maybe you did too. I was stumbling over my words and didn't quite know what to say or what the etiquette was. And so, you know, when we read in Luke 11, 1, that one day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. It's interesting that they asked Jesus to teach them to pray And I say it's interesting because they were practicing Jews before they became Christians, and Jews were steeped in ritual and even memorized prayers. And so praying as a technique, as an action, is not something they needed instruction on. They knew how to do it from their childhood. So what does it mean when they're asking Him, teach us to pray? Because, you know, when I was a new Christian, I felt like I needed someone to teach me how to pray. Is what they're asking that Jesus would teach them the techniques of prayer. Well, I don't think that's really what it is they were asking him because they already knew how to do that. Look at Hebrews 5 7. The writer of Hebrews says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. See, there was something different about the way that Jesus prayed. Yes, it was the words that He prayed. That mattered, but it was more than that. Beyond the words, it was the way that He prayed. There was a genuine passion, a a pathos to the way He prayed, a, a real struggle over what He was praying about. 
And you could see it in the emotions, in the way, the posture, everything about the way that he prayed. And yet that was, that, that fierce passion in prayer was juxtaposed with a reverent submission to God, a willingness to yield to what God wanted in the end. Maybe what they observed was that something about the way Jesus prayed, he didn't just say words into the air, but he seemed to be talking to a God who he knew and who was real to him. And he seemed to pray in a way that his real life was wrapped up in what was being prayed. That this was not just some religious ritual, but that for him, prayer was real and vital communication with a living God that had real consequences for the life he was living right then. And so the disciples, seeing that there was something different about the way Jesus prayed, asked him to teach them how to pray the way that he prays. In answer, Jesus gave them what we now call the Lord's Prayer. And the New Testament records two versions of this prayer. There's Luke's version in Luke 11, 1 to 2, and Matthew's version in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. You can see that they're essentially the same prayer, but there are subtle differences. Later, about in the first or second century, there was a, um, a catechism, which is basically just the beginning basic training of the Christian faith and doctrine, um, and it was called the Didache, which means the teaching of the Twelve. And this is the earliest written catechism that we have, and in it, it gives us a fuller version of what came to be known as the Lord's Prayer. It's very similar to the one that's familiar to us. And then many, many years later, we get the, the more English modern version that is familiar to most of us growing up. This is likely the version that you memorized when you were a child in Sunday school or something. So today, I want to start a series on the Lord's Prayer. And I want to explore this prayer uh, at a great depth. And uh, today, I'm going to give you a general introduction to the Lord's Prayer and the way that it was used in the early church. And then I want to key in for a short time on the first word of the prayer, at least the first word in English, which is our, our Father. I should note that I'm deeply indebted to Dr. Justo Gonzalez, a theologian originally from Cuba, who wrote a wonderful book called Teach Us to Pray. And I really gained some great new insights from reading his book. And so I'm really thankful for his writing this book. And I, I came across it through a podcast and uh, just really grateful for it. So I, I do want to acknowledge that I, a lot of the great insights that I gained, I gained from his book, and I want to share some of those with you. So I want to talk a little bit about how this prayer was used in the early church. And I know not all of you really like history, and maybe you're wondering why we're even talking about history in a sermon, but the way they use this prayer is really important for the way that we are supposed to understand how prayer works and one of the, the important ways that we're supposed to understand how to pray as a church. In the early church, they saw this as a common prayer. And what I mean by that is it was a prayer that united all Christians in all places at all times. In the early church, it was customary to have set hours of prayer. And these set hours really actually were a carryover from Judaism, where they borrowed the, the typical hours of prayer set in the Jewish temple. And so... Traditionally, um, the Christian community prayed three times a day at three appointed hours, at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. So it was like three hours spaced apart throughout the main part of the day. And you got to remember that um, because there was no artificial light, uh, really there wasn't a whole lot of evening hours anyway. And so for these three appointed hours, the whole community would often actually gather together 
especially if they lived in the same village or town, they would make every effort to gather physically in a home at these appointed hours and pray. Now, as society evolved and that became um, kind of impractical, people still made the point of praying, but what they would do is they would, wherever they were, at work or at home or in the fields, they would pause at these hours of prayer and take a moment to just pray together, even though they were physically scattered. They were spiritually united by praying. And they prayed, they were, they were joined in this because they prayed at the same time, and they prayed the same prayer. Obviously, in addition to the personal prayers that were lifted up, one of the things that the church always did was they prayed the Lord's Prayer at these appointed hours as a way to affirm that this prayer and what it represented, what it taught us, bound us together in a common faith. The very fact that the prayer begins with the word our, our Father, points to the fact that this is a communal prayer. It's not a prayer designed to be prayed alone in my closet for just me and mine. It is a prayer intended to reflect that I'm praying with the entire body of Christ all over the world. I'm praying with my own local church who is joining me at these appointed hours to pray together. And I was just thinking, what a beautiful picture that is, especially because we've just, we're, we're almost at the tail end of this, but it's been a crazy pandemic year where we've been a church physically separated and scattered. It's been really hard to hang on to that feeling of connection to one another. And I, I think this is a good reminder to us that what joins the church together isn't just being together physically. There are other powerful practices that deeply root us to one another. And the sharing of appointed times of prayer and the praying of the same prayer together is a really powerful way for all the people who follow Jesus to be bound together in a meaningful level of unity. So this is a common prayer, and by praying it at the same time and praying the same thing, it just joined people in a sense of solidarity to other Christians. It was also a model prayer. Now this is the only prayer that Jesus ever explicitly told us to pray. And so we should pay attention to that. There are no other set prayers that Jesus pointed us to. And yet when you look at the modern church, especially in America, very few churches pray the Lord's Prayer on a regular basis in their public worship services. I've been thinking about that because we have never really prayed the Lord's Prayer as a body at any of our Sunday services. And and I'm questioning why we don't. And maybe that's a practice we need to start. Because it's a prayer given to us in order to reinforce the unity of the church and to reframe our relationship with God and other people. See, I think one of the reasons we don't pray these liturgical or scripted prayers very much in the American church is that there's a strong bias in in our faith um, tradition to favor spontaneous prayers over scripted prayers. And I think the reason for that is uh, we have this idea that scripted prayers are kind of um, stiff and ritualistic. They're prayers that someone else wrote. They're not my words. So how could they be honest when I'm just praying what someone else told me to pray? But this isn't just some guy sitting in a study a hundred years ago. This is Jesus himself. And he told us explicitly, pray like this. And so, yes, it's a scripted prayer. It's a prayer written in someone else's words, but they are the words of our Savior, and they're given to us to pray. We think spontaneous prayers are really the only prayers that are honest and heartfelt and deeply personal because they come from our own mind and our own heart. 
And I don't want to pit the two against each other. Both kinds of prayer are essential to the Christian life. We do have to pray to God in our own tongue, in our own voice, in our own perspective. That is so important. But we need to regain and reclaim this practice of praying the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray because it's the one prayer that regardless of what we're going through, every one of us in every situation and circumstance can pray this in faith and honesty in front of God. The idea that this is a model prayer means that it serves as a template for all other prayers. It informs and even limits how we can pray freely when we pray our spontaneous personal prayers. So when you pray the Lord's Prayer, it's teaching you something foundational and important about the way that we relate to God and the way we're supposed to relate to our fellow human being. And it's a framework so that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, it shows you how you are supposed to and how you're not supposed to pray to God in your own individual prayer life. For example, when we pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I can't pray that in the Lord's Prayer and then in my spontaneous personal prayer, lift up prayers that say to God, I really want what I want. I'm struggling with what you want. Just give me what I want. Do you see that? You you can't pray the Thy will be done prayer and then go on in your personal spontaneous prayer to really pray My will be done. And so the Lord's Prayer really serves as a guide rail for the way that we pray even when we're praying spontaneously. The Lord's Prayer really gives us a framework for our relationship to God and our relationship with everyone else in the world around us and how that's supposed to affect the way that we pray. And it doesn't have to be lifeless repetition. I know that when we rehearse the same words over and over, just repeating them, it can become sort of mindless and lifeless. That's definitely possible, but it doesn't have to be like that. The Lord's Prayer is an invitation to reflect deeply on and to reinforce some of the most important things that we we ought to believe, things that bond us together as a common family in Christ. It also encourages us to have the right posture when we pray. And I'm not talking about a physical posture, but I'm talking about the right spiritual attitude towards God and others when we lift up prayers. Because it's possible to pray earnestly, but in ways that violate the heart of God, that actually are not prayers that God can honor or answer, because they run counter to the way He taught us to pray. Let me give you one last thing quickly here, is in that it's a priestly prayer. Now that one you're probably going to lose some of you right off the bat because you have no idea what I'm talking about. Let me unpack this because this has been one of the more important realizations for me. And it's one of the things that I cherish most that I'm learning about the Lord's Prayer and how we're supposed to pray this prayer. In the early church, new Christians were only taught the Lord's Prayer and allowed to pray it after they had gone through a catechism, which is basic training of doctrine. And this often lasted for up to two years. So a new Christian who had decided to follow Jesus had to go through this training to be taught the the essential facts of the Christian faith. And then after those two years, they were prepared for baptism. And when they were baptized, they were initiated into the family of Christ. And then and only then were they taught the Lord's Prayer and allowed to pray it together in public and in private. Now, why do they put up such walls to pray the Lord's Prayer? Is this some sort of secret handshake in in a secret society? That's not the spirit at all. It's because they believed something that had been a carryover from Judaism, which is that the people of God 
were a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. What he's saying is, when we become Christians, we also become priests. And we enter what we call the priesthood of all believers. That's such an important concept in Christianity. And we become priests before God, not just because it gives us status or access to God, but because we have a function, that we are to proclaim God. And the main point of a priest was not to, to relish in and enjoy his special status and access to God. See, for years, I really thought that what this meant, the priesthood of all believers, was that I don't need a priest because I now am a priest. And because of that, I can approach God directly without any other mediator. That in becoming a Christian and entering the priesthood of all believers, I thought it meant I no longer need to go to a priest for confession. I don't need someone else to do. I can go straight to God just as the priests did in the Old Testament, because Jesus has made it possible for me. That is partly true, and it's not wrong, but it really isn't the primary message of the idea that you and I are all priests in the kingdom of God. Justo Gonzalez writes in his book, and this is such a helpful insight, the priesthood of all believers does not mean simply or even first of all that each of us is our own priest. But it means, above all, that we are all priests for everyone else. The idea is that the main function of a priest is to bring people before the presence of God. It's not something we enjoy for ourselves, but it's a function we play before God and for the rest of the world. So that when we pray the Lord's Prayer, the reason they withheld that prayer from people until they were gone through catechism and baptism is because this is a priestly prayer. It's a prayer we pray on behalf of the whole world. It's a prayer we pray for others. It's what we call in Christianity an intercessory prayer. And intercession simply means praying for other people, for their welfare, their benefit. So that when I pray these things for the sake of the whole world, there are implications to how my own life has to change and adjust in order to align with what I've just prayed. We'll explore this more in the future, but here's an example. When I pray, give us this day our daily bread, do you know that most of the time I pray that, I'm really thinking in my, ha my head, give me today my daily bread. Give me, give me, give me everything I need in order to survive and flourish and thrive. Everyone else is kind of on their own. And once in a while, we might you know, throw in a little statement like, pray for all the people who don't have enough to eat. But do you see that when we pray this as an intercessory prayer for the whole world, we have to be included in God's answer to that prayer. I cannot hoard excess and still pray honestly that I want to see God give everyone else their daily bread. I have to be a part of that answer. We're going to explore those things much more, but you'll understand why the priestly aspect of this prayer is so important because when we pray this prayer together, we're not just praying for God to do something for us, but we're asking God to do something for the whole world around us and then to make us a part of that answer by changing the way that we live and conduct ourselves in the world so that through our prayer, our own lives are changed and God can use us to reach the whole world. 
Let me finish by exploring the significance of this first word, our. And it's not going to take very long, but I, I think it's a very important word to key in on as we, as we just dive into the series. In Matthew 6, 9, the prayer begins, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The fact that the prayer begins with the pronoun our is so important. Because there's such a strong individualism in American Christianity. You know, think about this. Most of the New Testament was not written to be read in private by one person. Even the personal letter to Philemon was addressed to Philemon, his wife, his ministry partner, and the, the entire church that met in his house. So most of the New Testament, arguably almost all of it, was written to be read in the assembly of the gathered people of God in a public setting by all the people together. And the implication there is that for most of the Bible to be obeyed and, uh, and honored, we have to do this together. It's not just a private me and God religion. And yet, think about how often you've read the Bible in your quiet times and read it entirely as a, what do I have to do? What do I have to learn? How do I have to change? Now, make no mistake, I have to have that attitude. I have to have a perspective that God wants to speak to me individually through Scripture. But it's also important to realize that He's speaking to all of us. That the way our church behaves is on all of us together. That it's not just about my individual faith. The Lord's Prayer tackles that individualism head on. It says that you cannot think of the Christian faith simply in terms of you and yourself and the people you immediately care about. It has always been a faith that is about all of us together and all of us for the whole world. When we say that we are praying for our Father and it's, this is a prayer that's a priestly prayer for everyone, you want to know how far and wide that, that everyone extends to. It's not just every Christian, it's every person in the world, even those who don't follow Jesus yet. Look at 1 Timothy 2.1. Paul writes to Timothy, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. When he says all people, He's not talking about just all Christians. He means all people. One of the functions that Timothy had as a pastor was to pray and to teach his people to pray for everyone and not just for our own tribe. As we unpack the rest of the Lord's Prayer, you'll understand why that is so, so important. It's a prayer that we pray for all of us, not just for some of us. Let me conclude this way. The use of pronouns is a pretty hot topic in our society today. Would you agree? Everybody's talking about the, the use of pronouns. And I don't want to address that in the political aspect of it, but I, I want to leverage that to say the way that we use pronouns in the spiritual realm is also critically important. American Christianity is really an I, me, my religion, isn't it? When we're honest about it, so much of what draws us and keeps us in the Christian faith is our obsession with I, me, and my, my God, my church, my life, my blessing. So much of the way that I've practiced Christianity and been taught to practice it is so individualized. And yet the Christianity of Jesus from the very start has always been a we, us, our faith. 
He has always taught it and practiced it and understood it as a communal faith. It has individual and personal implications, but it cannot be fully understood or practiced by myself. There's really no such thing as a biblical Christianity that is just me and my God all by ourselves, never mind everyone else. We've tried to make it that, but it's not possible to have biblical accuracy and honesty and still try to live that kind of personal, individual faith alone. When we read the New Testament with open eyes, again and again, it's presented to us as a faith that is only really able to be practiced and understood fully when we see our deep connection to everyone else, first in the church, but then everyone else in the whole world. You know, in my last short series, we were looking at the Apostle John's vision of the throne room of God. And in Revelation 7, 9 to 10, one of the pieces of that vision is this really beautiful picture of the great diversity of those who are saved in the throne room of God. Gathered all around the throne, listen, after this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. You see this beautiful picture of the great diversity of the saved. And so many people point to this and say, this is how the church should be. And I completely agree. We need to see greater diversity. But note this. These people come from all these different tribes and nations and languages and people groups that in earthly life hated each other, murdered each other, were at war with each other, looked down on one another. And yet here they are as one people, one great vast multitude, joined together in worship. And what is it that bonds them together? What is the basis of the unity we see in heaven amidst all the great diversity? Because when we see the basis of that unity, we will finally begin to understand what will give us unity in the church. And the only thing that ties them together, it's not the blood in their veins. It's the blood of Jesus that saved them. These greatly diverse people in this massive crowd, the only thing that holds them together makes them one people is a shared experience of one Father, of one Savior, of one faith that bonds them together. This is the real basis of Christian unity. It's not all about how much time we spend together or how we treat each other. Those things do matter, but they are not the lasting foundation of our unity as Christians. What makes this a we, us, our faith is not just the way we conduct ourselves, but the starting reality, which is we all share the same Father, the same Savior, the same experience of coming to Christ through His grace. And then the same faith that governs the way that we live with God and with other people. One of my personal spiritual goals this year is to grow in my prayer life. I've always known that that has been one of my perpetual weaknesses in my faith journey. And I really want to grow in it. Let me just finish by making this confession. I always thought that growing in prayer meant pray more, pray longer, pray harder. And I try that. And I'll be honest with you, I grew like that for a little bit, but it's really hard for me to keep that going for some reason. 
But I'm so thankful that one of the things I'm really learning as I prepare for this series is that to grow in prayer means also to pray differently. It's not just about quantity and intensity and frequency. It's about a different posture, a different mindset as we pray. A whole different perspective on what I should be praying for and who I should be praying for. And this morning we learned that one of the things that our Lord's Prayer taught us right away is that when we pray, we don't pray just for ourselves, but we pray as priests of God in the world. We pray for everyone even for those who are not yet in the family of Christ. And I hope that this series will help you grow in prayer in that same way. When I was in college, every day for my quiet time, I I would pray a little bit, I would read the Bible, and I would pull out a book by Patrick Johnstone called Operation World. And it showed all the different people groups and unreached nations and all that and would tell us how to pray for that people group. And because I thought I was going to be a missionary one day, I faithfully prayed out of that book every single day for a different people group in the world around us. Sometimes I would lose track and I would start over. And so I would start with the A's again. And so interestingly, I prayed for the country of Albania quite often. And this summer, I have the opportunity to go to Albania to see if it might be a mission field for our church to engage in. And I'm really excited about that. And I've, I've um, ordered recently the updated edition of Operation World because I realized that one of the ways I want to grow in my prayer life is to stop just praying for me and my family and my church, but to resume the practice of praying for the nations, praying for people I'll never meet, just praying that God would show His love to the whole world, to all the areas of trouble and violence and upheaval and division, to learn to pray more broadly the way the Lord taught us to pray. I hope that God will help you grow in that kind of prayer as well. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. I I really hope that one of the things that God will set on your heart is that you also will grow in prayer and that this series will help you to do that. Before we have the closing song and the benediction, I'd like to invite you just to pause for a minute right now and reflect on your own prayer life. Are there things that you were convicted of as you heard this message about the way God wants you to grow in prayer? How individualistic is your faith? Have you been living an I, me, my Christianity? Do you sense God pulling you to have a greater sense of the we, us, our Christianity? So I'm going to offer you a a minute just in quiet to listen for the voice of God, respond to Him in some personal way. And then we'll have a closing song and I'll come back to give you a blessing. Harvest Church, one of the great privileges we have being born again Christians is that God has also made us priests. And priests enjoy access and status, but that is not the main thing. He has also called us to be those who will present all people before the presence of God. It's our privilege to carry His message, to even pray for those people when they have no idea we're praying for them. And it's one of the ways that we are called to grow. So may God strengthen and grow your prayer life. Not just to pray more often or harder, more intensely or for longer, but also to pray differently than you've been praying. To pray less individualistically and to pray more as a priest sent by God to all the nations of the world to really pray for others 
and for the places where God most needs to show himself and be at work in our world today. May God bless you with an ever-growing and enriching prayer life in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Be blessed now and forever. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being with us. Keep praying for God to open the doors to the Now Arena and look forward to the day very soon when we can all be together again in person as a church. God bless you and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.